Hi, I'm Scott. Welcome to the Synthetic Dreams podcast. From well-known pioneers to exciting new artists. On this show, I interview musicians from the world of electronic music and beyond. Hello, I'm delighted to be joined by two very talented European men on the podcast today. And that's Richard James Burgess and John Walters from legendary synth-pop band Landscape. Landscape had a couple of massive hits in the early 80s, um, one being Einstein A Go-Go, which I believe number five in the charts in 1981. Well, around June that year, uh, Norman Bates also reached the uh, top 40. The second album, From the Tea Rooms of Mars to the Hell Holes of Uranus, came out with critically acclaimed um, reviews and had some absolutely brilliant singles as well. Our European Man, uh, some of my other favourite tracks on there. I love um, Computer Person, that's a great tune. And um, Face of the 80s is also another one of my favourites. Um, it was great to speak to the guys today to talk about this career-spanning box set that's uh, due to come out on Cooking Vinyl. It's, what I love about uh, groups like this is that if you you know, scratch under the surface, not only do you get uh, some wonderful stuff that uh, records that John has produced, but also Richard, we talk about this uh, electronic drum kit that he co-invented. We speak a bit about producing the first um, Spandau Ballet um, albums uh, and uh, the single Cut a Long Story Short. And we don't even get to the fact that uh, Richard actually coined the phrase New Romantic, um, so creating a genre name as well. Um, and then even the bass player who's not on the uh, interview, but he co-wrote the theme tune to The Bill. So there's all this wonderful... Uh, backstory and solo stuff and, and things that they've been involved with so they're really a talented uh, musician so it was wonderful to spend some time with them and i hope you enjoy the interview too so here it is my interview with richard james burgess and john walters I'm delighted yeah, to be joined by Richard James Burgess and John Waters on the podcast today to speak about this fantastic box set that's coming out, Landscape A Go-Go, The Story of Landscape, 1977 to 83. Um, so thanks for coming on to speak about this box set. Thanks for having us. We really, really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, so thank uh, you. where do we start? I mean, it's five CDs, 84 tracks, no less. I mean, when did the idea come about? Were you approached and <laughs> start the, um, the making of it? It came about because Richard uh, realized we could get all our old tracks back. Uh, and we also had a lot of tracks that we owned, the live tracks. Uh, so the idea of putting it all together as a box set, uh, I, I guess it was during lockdown, wasn't it, Richard? Yeah, I, I, that, was when I, that was when I digitized the tapes I'd had. I've been sitting on these um, quarter-inch uh, reel-to-reel tapes for you know, 45 years, basically, since we recorded them in 77. I guess. And, um, and they traveled all around the world with me. I, I had them in England. I took them to New York. I took them to LA. I took them back to New York, back to England. And, uh, I, you know, I've just, I, these things have gone everywhere. 
And uh, I didn't even know what kind of condition they would be in. I tried to preserve them as well as I could. And, um, and, and but then I, I was able to get the rights back from Sony um, for our three albums that we did for RCA, for which we were very grateful, I, I will say. And, and that, you know, once we started talking about re-releasing those records, then we, we started talking about how to, um, you know, what we could do with the live tapes. And initially, uh, you know, it sort of evolved over time that we would actually sort of integrate them in with the Spice CD box set. Um, you know, and, and we had to figure out whether we were going to do it ourselves on just on the Event Horizon label or whether we were going to go do a deal with somebody else. But in the end, we decided to do a license deal. We had a lot of really attractive offers, but we really liked cooking vinyl because um, they, they seemed to understand who we were and they knew a lot about us and they gave us a really great proposal. So we're pretty yeah, happy with it, that deal a, so far. It's actually a, a joint venture between landscape music and cooking vinyl. And of, of course, it was very nice to kind of get everyone back together, you know, via Zoom, in fact, rather than where well, we had the odd drink together. But, um, you know, just to get all five of us uh, back together, looking at our history and our back catalogue. And I, I think we were really pleasantly surprised by, uh, well, the state of the tapes, which, which uh, the live tapes, which uh, we got digitized, and also by the, uh, the original multi-tracks uh, from our uh, RCA days. I think we all kind of uh, got really excited again about what we managed to do uh, during that time. I mean, it's, it's an amazing experience to hear yourself playing live from 45 years ago, and you haven't heard that stuff. You haven't heard that in, in 45 years. You've never heard it, you know, because I, I would not play the tapes because they were those, you know, mid-70s, early 80s, um, you know, Ampex tape that was um, <laughs> that had the sticky shed syndrome. So I knew that, you know, we, actually, we would have to bake them. Actually, Scott, uh, since your podcast called Synthetic Dreams, do, do you know about this problem and why it, uh, tapes in that era have to be baked. Is, is this something other guests have talked about? No, no, please, please tell us. A particular kind of tape from that era, which um, because they changed the glue they used, uh, they became very volatile and you can have the problem. You might be play a tape, you know, really valuable recording with orchestras and all sorts of things on it. And, um, you know, play it 20 years later and the emulsion starts to come off. So in, in order to preserve the tape from that time, you have to put it in a in an oven at a, a low heat and bake it for is it twenty four hours, uh, Richard? Or I, I think it varies. But it's quite a low for? it's quite a low temperature, and um and then that basically sort of means you can play it, but it, it doesn't stay like that forever. I mean, if you do if you need to do it again, you you have to bake it again. But my feeling with tapes is that you know you you, you want to do the least amount you can. So we we baked it once and transferred, it. and I actually had the um the restoration engineer from Smithsonian Folkways, Pete Reiniger, who sadly died during the COVID um, pandemic. Um, and he did it for us. And um, Pete, I worked with Pete for 14 years and he's just like a phenomenal um, engineer and incredibly knowledgeable. So we're really grateful that he did such a great job uh, for us. Uh, yeah, he, he did. He did such a great job. And it was a massive job too, Scott, because it's just, we've got this uh, great picture of, uh, from Richard of all these tapes piled up on a on a trolley uh, about to be digitized. Um, you know, I think we'd we'd forgot we, we used to do this thing of recording. Uh, we we did a lot of um, 
residencies in London in the late 70s. We, we, every Tuesday were at Stapleton, every Thursday were at Swan. And we would just record all those gigs. Uh, Richard brought his Revox along, had a pair of coincident mics, and uh, the band had a good internal balance. So we, we were able to capture that. But you also get the sound of those rooms, those London pubs from that era, which is uh, also quite uh, oh, an interesting bit of sonic uh, experience. Ah, oh, it's just, that'd be wonderful to hear. I mean, were there any tracks that maybe you haven't heard for a while that you were pleasantly surprised with or had, had you known most of the material? Or were there some things you went, well, I forgot how good that track was. I, I actually sort of, <laughs> when it was digitized, the first album, the landscape album, yeah. kind of, um, I, I, I'd always hated that album because I felt like it didn't quite capture our live energy. Um, and somehow when it was digitized, it kind of got more, of a sparkle to it, more of vitality. And so I suddenly sort of rediscovered that. And I think tracks like Mechanical Bride on that track really, I mean, I can't get that damn song out of my head anymore, you know. <laughs> and I, I didn't listen, I, I never listened to my stuff. I, I, I don't go back and listen to my things over the years. So hearing it all again was really, really amazing. Yeah, actually, it's funny you should mention that track, Richard, because I'm, I'm in the middle of an interview with uh, Chai at the Electricity Club, who who interviewed right, me yeah. about ten years ago. Very nice guy, yeah. and and he asked me to sort of pick out a track, and I, I mentioned the Mechanical Bride because it's ah. like the ultimate crossover track between the live landscape and the electronic landscape. Uh, you know, because we we were playing kind of electronic computerized rhythms um, that on gigs and. Uh, and there's a live, there's a the, the original album track version of that, but there's also a live version of that from a few months before we recorded the album. So I, I think that, you know, that that's the kind of uh, if people get confused about the earlier jazz-oriented things we do and the later totally electronic things we did, that's that's <laughs> that's the track that points both directions. Fantastic. Yeah, I always I, I like that track. For me, it was really transitional because. Because it was called Mechanical Bride, I was trying to play it like a like I imagined a a, a computer would play the drums, and um, I, I always thought that was might be why Trevor Horn asked me to play on the Buggles album because he used to come over from um, the Hammersmith Palais and watch us at the Swan, and you know he was really into precision and stuff like that. So and and it has that feel about it. I'm I also really um, pleased with how the live version from the box set matches up with the studio version. It, you know, the studio version has more bells and whistles. It has more electronics on it. But um, the actual playing, I think, is really incredible from the whole band. Mm. Yeah, and Richard, you mentioned earlier about the fact you did this during the um, the lockdowns. Did that, did that make things harder with putting the box set together? Was it trickier because we were going through this global pandemic at the time to get this box set together? I don't think so. No, I mean, I, you know, I remember Pete Reiniger because Pete had had some immune deficiency issues. And so when I took the tapes over to him, you know, him and his wife and I sat on their porch um, in just outside of Washington, D.C., you know, because we all obviously had to all socially distance. And this was the point before um, vaccines and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Zoom's been an amazing boon. So yeah. I think... Um, Although I know, you know, you can get to hate Zoom. Same time, it enables you to get a lot more done in a day, really. You know, now we're all running around again. And you realize, oh, gosh, you know, I can only do about half as much 
yeah. how I have to go to meetings. <laughs> so I, I, I think it might have helped in a way because you sort of focus, you know, you're like, well, what can I do now? You know, I'm not, I'm not somebody you can sit around. I don't watch TV. I can't sit around. I just not, it's not who I am. I can't hmm. imagine. But I, <laughs> you know, there's also that thing of just transporting yeah. the multi-tracks out to uh, FX in uh, West London where, um, who did all the digitization of the, uh, the multi-tracks and the outtakes and that kind of thing. So, you know, Andy's in North London, I'm in South London, and we, we both headed out there to um, uh, basically uh, brief FX about what needed doing. And just, you know, it's relabeling all the tapes and things was, was quite a big operation. And um, now we have this bulging Dropbox uh, full of everything we've done, everything we've digitized so far. Things like BB's broadcasts and demos and things to digitize but um and we're also generating new material through remixes instrumental versions uh, uh, like well for example the einstein go go remix which uh where richard added some extra drums and, and uh, that that came out just over a week ago our, our first single release for 40 years wow i tell you what i tell you what was amazing um, for me was how we sort of fell back into our old roles because back in the 70s we um, we're a DIY band. I mean, I didn't use that term back then, but we were. We had our own label, and we used to divide up the tasks between the band. And, um, you know, it was kind of somewhat organic. People would sort of fall into things that they were naturally good at. And um, when we had to do this again, I, I was really impressed and amazed. And, you know, it was gratifying to see everyone just sort of picked up their little piece of it, you know, and... Um, uh, you know, there was a really collaborative effort. It's, it's really great to work with everybody again after all these years. Yeah, I could just imagine. And also, also included is this wonderful uh, 52-page book. I mean, how did you go about finding photos and articles for that? That must have been a, a, a job well, as well. Jo John, John was sort of the driving force behind that, really. I mean, we always knew that's what we wanted to do. And all of us have archives, but John obviously, you know, runs the eye and um you know that's been his life for quite some time and then i worked at smithsonian on many box sets and things so, i mean but but it was really john who was um the you know the the driving force behind putting that together i'm really really pleased with it i mean i've, I've done a lot of box sets and i think this one really stands up uh, yeah i mean i've i've actually been um putting the archive together for you know five or six years. I mean, I, I got a, a young relative in to help me just organize everything uh, several years before we even knew we could get the tracks back from uh, Sony because I felt it was, it was valuable stuff, you know, and um, uh, so there's big scra scrapbooks, uh, there's original photo prints. Uh, we thought we might get a lot of stuff back from the record company, but they, they seem to have lost most of the things. Uh, but we've also been back in touch with um, original photographers and uh, John Morica, who did the original artwork. So, uh, but um, there's, the, the booklet is actually only a fraction of what we've got in the archive. Uh, because uh, um, we got John Morica, who was, did our sort of identity shortly after we did the Event Horizon EPs. You know, he, John's first album cover ever was the first landscape album 
and he came up with the, the logo and uh, all the amazing graphics. And, you know, it's amazing more than 40 years later, still working with the same designer uh, who's now in Australia. So um, he and I had a, a, a long, long distance uh, collaboration, putting everything together. And John did a pile of brand new artwork, which you can see on the cover and you will see on the box when it's physically uh, in our hands. Um, and um, uh, uh, art directed uh, the whole package. And I just gave John access to our image Dropbox and let him choose what he wants to use. So, uh, you know, it, it, it could have been, it could have been many different sorts of booklets, but we're very happy with the way uh, John put it together. And um, he's now uh, also designed a series of singles covers, um, which are going to be coming out over the next uh, next few months in the lead up to the box set. So oh, it's, it's also exciting you know, <laughs> to yeah. see even more images come out. You know, there's going to be a release for European Man uh, next month uh, oh. with oh, a totally different cover to the one that's on the original single. And it's honestly, and I'm not just saying it because you guys are on, but it's probably one of my favorite tracks, not just electronic tracks just it's just one of my favorite tracks of all time i always try and get on a playlist if i can european man i just one of those tracks i just really love <laughs> thank you that, that was great. actually the that's that great the to hear track. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it really is that was the first track that we really sort of um when we made the switch from being an instrumental band to being a vocal band and it started life as a um and correct me if i'm wrong on any of this john but um we, I, it was a song i think i started called root national and it yeah, was instrumental. Fine. And then, and then, you know, we realized after the first album came out and we realized that, you know, the major record label couldn't really understand or handle an instrumental band that was starting to sort of dive in deep into electronics. Um, so we decided to add vocals and we agonized over whether we should bring in a singer or not. Actually, we didn't really agonize over it. We had about a four second <laughs> conversation about it. I think we'd all work with enough bands to know that. These singers are egomaniacs, and um, and we just couldn't handle that. So we just divided the vocal duties up between ourselves, and we figured, well, we, you know, we'll, we'll get by. And um, and so you know, but but I what I really like about it, looking back on it, and I I find this with a lot of the tracks on that album and subsequent and on the Manhattan Boogie Woogie album too, is that you know the themes that we came up with are very um, uh, are very uh, current and. In the sense that you know we're talking of what what's now called a UBI, Universal Basic Income, we called it a gratuity in that particular, um, in, in, you know, in, in European men itself. But but actually, what we're really talking about is a UBI, and um, so I think that's it's kind of fascinating. Scott, one one detail might appeal to you is that um, if you listen very carefully, you can hear um, Richard and me. Uh, reading out the code that goes into programming oh, yeah. uh, part of European Man. So we're just sort of listening measure set, you know, 32. Uh, yeah. it's, it's In those days, you when you programmed um, music computers, it, it was not much above machine code. You, you had to give each note uh, several numerical values. And uh, we found that a way to do that was to, to write it all out on squared paper and read out the other person which keyed into the machine. 
fantastic. I mean, I just love that. I mean, the 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 intro alone, I it just gets me each time. I just like <laughs> you're as soon as it. I mean, that that for me, we're saying about songs that stick in your head. That if I listen to that, it's just in my head all day then, and I'm kind of singing it, <laughs> which I suppose that's good. That's a sign of a you know a catchy song if you if it's in your head all day, and then I'm, I'm singing your. Um, well, it's interesting. Yeah, interesting point. Um, I guess one thing that we had even in our instrumental days was, you know, we had lots of hooks, you know, the lot, lots of tunes and riffs that people did respond to. So, um, yeah, we one of the things was um, Andy ran off a bunch of instrumental versions of our of all of the Tea Rooms album and the Manhattan Boogie Woogie album because they're good for sync. And it's interesting how well they hold up as instrumentals we put a couple of them on the box set um but i think that comes from the fact that we were an instrumental band and so when you're an instrumental band you sort of you're always thinking in terms of hooks yeah. and um so that's what we you know i i i think when i listen through the stuff now i realize you know practically everything's a hook even the drum parts are, are hooks in many ways and back back in your early days um we were talking about sort of the live tracks. Did you do many, many shows or did you do sort of support tours and support any sort of larger acts? No. We didn't? No. We always had no, like... a... oh, that's... Um, oh, except for the rich kids. <laughs> we oh, yeah, supported yeah. the rich kids. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Though. Which was good fun. Yeah, I can imagine. They're great. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, on the whole, we, we did a few um, festivals and college balls where we did an oxford ball once didn't we where there'd be a lot of different bands on on the bill elvis uh, costello that's right uh, elvis costello the only ones quite you know quite sort of uh, yeah. and, and of course we would do jazz festivals um where we did the, the best to jazz festival i still keep meeting people who were at that match to jazz festival where bill Oddie was the compere um, and there was you know it's just an amazing lineup of people i mean um a really leading jazz names from uh, like voice with Julie Tippetts, aka Julie Driscoll, were on the same bill, and that was just magical uh, day. But on the whole, um, I mean, we just started talking a little early. We we did these residencies at London pubs and clubs like the Stapleton Tavern, which is still going, uh, the Swan, the Speakeasy, which was a late, very late night gig where all the uh, roadies from the, the major bands hung out. And uh, we also did Ronnie Scott's Upstairs, uh, which was like a kind of funk, kind of DJ-based club, but they would have a band, a band would have to sort of slot into the DJ set for you know, yeah. an hour. And um, I do, I have very, had very vivid memories of passing all the equipment up the narrow stairs to the top of Ronnie Scott's. So it's a bit of relief when we finally got a gig downstairs at Ronnie's. And, yeah, <laughs> easier on the knees. Yeah, we worked. We, I mean, we worked constantly. There was a period of about three years when we were working five or six nights a week, and and some of us were doing studio work during the day as well. So it was an amazing time, actually. I mean, I, you know, I love playing. So, yeah, I mean, it's amazing looking back to think how many live music venues there were, and also, you know, we found it really difficult to get. <laughs> because we were instrumental so um, we really had to kind of you know push quite hard and but usually once we got once the venue got to know 
that we could pull a crowd and that we were entertaining, um, then uh, we did get uh, either residencies or return bookings. And we did a lot of colleges and um, jazz clubs. I mean, there's, there's one time when we would kind of, you know, a, a typical week, there would be a jazz club, an arts center, uh, a punk club, and a new wave club. You know, everybody had their different way of seeing us. And we seemed to, it seemed, you know, we, what we were doing was so unusual, it didn't really matter. You know, we weren't typical jazz, we certainly weren't typical punk, but uh, those audiences, uh, were prepared. I, I think there's a kind of openness <laughs> that we could, we yeah. could get away with. Uh, with it was playing. an amazing just, time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we always whole, put a lot of energy into the performance. The, the whole new wave punk thing, I think, opened things up for us, um, even though we weren't remotely new wave or punk. Um, and we used to call it jazz punk at the time. But I think, um, you know, we, we also promoted our own shows. So we did like, what used to be called the music machine. And then it was called Candle Palace. I think it's Coco's now, right? And That's um right. And, and we did like the Hampstead Town Hall, Fulham Town Hall, places like that. And and we'd we'd book circus acts to open for us so they wouldn't have to kind of disrupt our stage setup. Uh, and um yeah, it was like, you know, it, it, it was difficult because we had, you know, because of all the electronics and stuff which were, you know, still pretty um you know, they weren't they weren't as stable as they are today. Um, it was it was better for us to not have another band on the stage. With us, we had to move stuff around because you move that stuff around a lot of times it doesn't work. Um, That's a great idea. You know, yeah, yeah, it was great. We had fire readers and God knows. I, I think didn't Pete used to book those, John? Well, um, we had um, yeah, there's a comedian called Fred Shovel. I seem to right. and uh, <laughs> a, a great guy called Roger Ruskin Spear, who'd been in the Bonzo Dog Band, oh, yeah. who had a thing called, um, you know, Roger Roger Ruskin Spear and his kinetic wardrobe. But he was a one-man right. show. Everything kind of packed into this his tiny car with this kind of comedy material. But he was a very good musician as well. And so uh, we felt our audience would, yeah, it's the idea of having a complete evening's entertainment that didn't. You know, it wasn't just a string of bands. It would be um, something uh, really strong and uh, would, would create a kind of atmosphere that people could enjoy. And then, you know, and this was the time when we, we had our EPs out so we could sell our EPs and T-shirts. And it was, it felt like, a, it, it, I mean, it's what in every indie band does now, but we were kind of inventing it because it, it, there weren't any other bands to emulate who were doing that kind of stuff or, and, and doing the kind of music they were doing. I think I think to some extent we were sort of children of the goons, the Monty Python, and um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as well, which we listened to endlessly when we were on the road. So, um, you know, having that kind of bizarre kind of opener worked for us. I don't know if you if you'd agree with that, John, but that yeah, <laughs> yeah there seems absolutely. to be a connection there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I think actually that was. That was one of my answers to, to the Electricity Club questions that, you know, he's talking about the humour in, um, in the, the, the songs. And yeah. uh, I mentioned Hitch Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which uh, I think actually JJ introduced us to that. I think he had all, he all did, stuff yeah. on tape. He did, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, uh, so that kind of, um, uh, that, that was very much 
uh, the atmosphere of the, of the time. So it's kind of kind of very serious about the music, but actually not taking anything very seriously, and certainly not taking technology too seriously. To go back to your first question, <laughs> because excited by the technology, but we also knew it was very fallible, and yeah. uh, you know, we tried to make it work for us in the, the best way we could. I was going to say, I mean, electronic music can sometimes be referred to as sort of, I don't know, cold or soulless, but there's definitely a warmth and a, a humour in your music. And like you said, you, you hit the point there. You're serious about the music you make, but I also felt there's a lot of fun in your music, which I thought that's the appeal I had to it anyway. Yeah, we, we definitely, well, we had a lot of fun. I think the band, you know, was really enjoyable. And, and, and the other thing is everybody in the band is you know, everybody has a slightly different perspective on the world and the band. And maybe that's true with all bands, but this conversation in the car when we were traveling, because, you know, you spend endless amounts of time in the car um, or, you know, moving around um, or sitting around in, in dressing rooms and green rooms and stuff like that. Um, you know, it was there was never a lack of interesting conversation. <laughs> we were always debating this and debating that and talking about this and talking about well, that. We, we... Figuring stuff we out. Yeah, we weren't one of those bands where we'd all been to the same school or grown up in the same street. You know, everyone came from really different places, and we'd come together through music. You know, through through going to jazz uh, summer schools and being into experimental music and avant-garde music, and you know, it, it wasn't. Um, it was a kind of coming together of. Five quite different life stories and perspectives, and then you become a band, and you know you have certain roles within the band, and then over time those roles uh, change. And one of the interesting things which you can hear you can hear in the music actually of the, the story of landscape um, is that our once we we were purely a studio band, we stopped playing live in the early 1980s. Um, the roles really freed up and we could all do very different things within the uh, the way we worked together in the studio. Because I believe after yeah. that, both of you went into production work. Is that correct? Yeah, well, several of us did. I think uh, Chris did as well. Um, Andy yeah. and Pete stayed doing studio work. And um, yeah, I mean, it was sort of an, an inevitability, really. I mean, I really, my first production, my first full-on sort of, professional production gig was a consequence of the Tea Rooms album because I had I I had taught Rusty Egan to play drums. He'd stayed in touch with me. He was quite a bit younger than me, probably ten years maybe more younger than me. And um and then he called me one time and said, You gotta come down and see my club, the Blitz. And so I went and that was how I met Spandau Ballet. And I, I didn't even realize they were a band. I'd played them played them my stuff. I used to park my car like right outside the Blitz and I'd we went outside and I played them some roughs of the um, of of the Tea Rooms album on my, on, you know, in, in the car stereo, and um, and and then I got a call from Steve Dagger saying, "Would you be interested in producing the band?" And so that was kind of the beginning of my produ production career, and um, and and I think that you know that there's something you know because we worked together and the record did sound incredible. I mean, I still. It's still my favorite record that I've ever worked on. You know, I mean, I, it was a joint production. It wasn't my production, the T-Rooms album. But um, it's, you know, I, when, when I look back over all the work I've done, and I'm, I'm proud of a lot of it, I, it, that's the one that stands out to me. I go, yeah, we just somehow everything just coalesced and yeah. became, I think, I think it was because 
what I put it down to is everything we did on that record was kind of breaking new ground. You know, the MC8 microcomposer computer, you know, no, as far as we knew, nobody else had made a record using the MC8 at the time. And I think even in retrospect, the only other band that was working with one was probably the Yellow Magic Orchestra. Um, and But we weren't aware of them at the time we were doing it. And, um, and, and, and then, you know, all the, electronics was still in a sort of nascent state to some extent. You know, there was no MIDI. We were five years away from MIDI still. And, you know, so you were limited as to the the the, the synthesizers that you could link up. You know, it, they had to be all one volt per octave or they all had to have the same, um, you know, the same, uh, uh, you know, voltage per octave uh, uh, standard, which most many of the synthesizers didn't at the time. And um, so, you know, it was because when, when you're sort of treading into new territory, you, you're not, you, you don't have the um, problem of uh, copying other people because there's nobody else to copy, you know. So I, I think that <laughs> there's a freshness to the record that um, I really, really like listening back to it now. It's fascinating just how, how good the original multitracks sound. I mean, I, I, I'm listening through... Um, Einstein Agogo multi-track last night and you just put a few faders up and it immediately <laughs> sounds really good and I'm thinking you know there's only, there's only about a quarter of the tracks actually uh, are muted at the moment but it, it sounds fantastic yeah. and um, yeah. the one of the things as well with kind of breaking new ground by using the MCA microcomposer which is which was kind of what Richard and I did you know we taught each other to, we worked together with a manual to learn how to do it because there's nowhere there's no kind of YouTube or course you could do then um, but then we started to um, we'd bring in things that came from the older days of the band. So like you, you get this fuzz piano, which is the kind of amazing stuff that Chris did with his fuzz box and ring modulator on a Fender Rhodes piano, which you know, people think of the Fender Rhodes as a very kind of uh, mellow uh, yacht rock kind of instrument. But Chris made it sound like nothing else, you know, this monstrous sound. And then on Norman Bates, you hear these... Um, effects as uh, screaming sounds that are produced through Boeing cymbals, which was an avant-garde technique that uh, well, been in use for a long time, but uh, something that uh, Richard would do when he played with a chord, which was the improvising trio that uh, Chris formed in the mid-70s. Uh, and then you get uh, Peter playing through a pitch-to-voltage synthesizer. So you hear you know, synth sounds that are actually driven by trombone. Um, or fuzz, fuzz, fuzz trombone, like that outrageous solo at the end of European Man. That's that's Peter kind of at full flight, uh, the, the way he would do in a, in a club. But we're, we're, so we we kind of brought synthesized those elements that, that were not synthesized, if you like, as much as we did uh, use uh, computers and synthesizers that uh, we managed to get our hands on. Yeah, I heard a thing on on the interview with JJ yesterday. We were asking about. Um, you were talking about the manual and stuff, and we had one of the very first Fairlights. There were three Fairlights came out of Australia. One went to Peter Gabriel, one went to us, and the other one went to Psycho. And um, and the yeah, I remember we got it. I mean, the manual was probably about an inch thick, three quarters of an inch thick, something like that. And it was kind of typewritten, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't printed. And um, and I remember we got it into the music room in my house in Camberwell, and um. And there was this thing where it said initialize Fairlight, Fairlight. 
and we were agonizing over this and it was kind of late at night and i realized well you know australia is actually in now so we called australia and he goes oh yeah mate that just means turn it on <laughs> and um <laughs> it was like i mean the, you you mentioned it on 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 the, on the interview which i thought was quite insightful that there was no there was no youtube back then you know nowadays you just google it you know how do you how do you do this and but back then you know you'd have to read the whole damn manual and sort of pour through it and it was totally a pain so it was the same with the mc8 and the same and and the fairlight and all and all the modular synths we had and the various different you know synthesizers i mean this was a time when polyphonic synths were just starting to happen and uh you know so it was, it was an incredibly stimulating time because you 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 were, your brain was like stretched in 15 different directions trying to figure out all this new technology a how it works b you know how to make it work with the other bits and pieces you had and c you know how to how to you know sort of utilize it musically speaking as it were um so so it was it was, it was very um exciting i think the thing you brought up before about how you know our music was a bit warmer um a lot of that was because we had this obsession with um with uh, control in the sense of sort of musical control and um you know if you look at it the lyricons are you know a very expressive instrument because you know it's you've got the whole sort of um reed um you know embouchure type aspect going on and then chris had the cs80 which was um you know had all kinds of touch sensitivities that other synthesizers didn't have and still don't to some extent um i mean and even cs80 the, was 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 quite a big breakthrough when Chris got that, wasn't it? Because it has it really touch sensitivity after touch, and it has the um, uh, the, the the strip, uh, the uh, you know, the slider strip to uh, change pitch. If you listen to tracks like uh, Japan, you really hear you know fantastic CSHT comping using all those elements um, behind the front line of the band. Yeah, and that was important to uh, us, you know, that we still had some human element because we, we liked all the stuff like Kraftwerk, but Kraftwerk sort of made made a, made a thing of the whole sort of automated, you know, kind of non-expressive Germanic sort of vibe, and and we wanted to sort of more of a Europe. We we wanted to be European. We did. We although we had heavy American influences, we we were not trying to you know emulate um, Black American music. Um, we were just using those influences, but at the same time, we did want to come across as European, but we didn't want to come across as kind of cold and mechanical. You could say that actually Norman Bates is pretty cold, but that's for, for uh, programmatic reasons. Yeah, it's cold, <laughs> but it's expressive, though. I mean, it's dark, yeah, I think, more than cold. It's dark, yeah. yeah. And and actually, I always thought Kraftwerk was pretty funny. You know, I, I went to see them at the Roundhouse, and uh, I thought it was a great kind of you know, deadpan oh, sense of humour. In, in no, I think they're just... hilarious, yeah. <laughs> It yeah, was, they do uh, have a lot of humor in there. Yeah, and what they're, yeah. they're, they're it's great what they're doing now with the whole three D visual thing. So I think you know they're they're very entertaining to see craft work at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, have I mean, you they, seen them, Scott? I, I've seen them a few times. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's always good. I was going to say because I'm just so impressed with you guys working with these old analog uh, equipment. And and you, you mentioned uh, Richard about teaching Rusty Egan the drums. So yeah. we're obviously going to have to mention the uh, the drum synthesizer that you you know you co 
you know, design, which is amazing. So if you could just tell the listeners yeah. a little bit about how you developed that that drum synthesizer. Well, a lot of that was due to the band, you know, because we we would be stuck in a car for at least four hours, you know, London to Manchester's four hours. Sometimes we'd go up to Edinburgh, which was, you know, Glasgow, which was eight hours and even further, you know, so you'd be stuck in a car a lot. And we'd just talk about this, that and everything. And I remember we had a conversation about, you know, I m- remember talking about why drums are still sort of in at the caveman stone age kind of level of development because basically there was still like a skin stretched over a, a hollow log effectively um and um you know bouncing that idea around i'd sort of started developing this electro electric drum idea which i still have actually i just never took it anywhere and then i was thinking about well why jump to electric when we can go all the way to electronic because that's kind of where you know we were moving out of the electric phase um in in uh, in general, you know, we were moving away from the Fender Rhodes and the Yamaha electric piano um, and the uh, and everything into pure synthesizers. You know, this was right around the time when the Prophet 5 came out, which is the first polyphonic synth and, and so on. So thinking about that, um, and I bought myself a, an EMS synth A, um, which I'd uh, gotten because I, we'd, I'd worked with Chris's band, Accord, um, the synthesis in that Roger Corkwell, he had um, he had he had a synth A, and it was basically a suitcase or the briefcase version of the VCS three, and I'd been always trying to create drum sounds on that, and um, you know I, actually in the end I wound up doing writing an article for Melody Maker I think it was um, on the state of play with electronic drums I'd 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 used a thing called the impact percussion on an Easy Street record. And nothing out there really did what I wanted. They were all sort of like sound effects. They all did that sort of boo, boo thing. And um, I talked to Joe Pollard at Syndrums. I said, look, I think I, I know what it would take to make this into an actual real drum set. And he said, well, it, it already is. And I couldn't get anywhere with him. And then John had bought, you know, the Lyricon from Musicate. So I went up there with him one day and I was talking to Dave Simmons, who had uh, a Syndrome sound-alike look-alike device called the SDS3 and you know I got a couple of those and I took them home and I was messing around with them and I realized we really could make something that actually sort of replaces the drum set functionally I didn't necessarily want it to sound like a drum set I just wanted to have the same kind of impact that a drum set has and um, so I sort of mocked it up and I went up to St. Albans and um, and I showed him what I had and actually we we he had a he had an ARP twenty six hundred in the in his workshop, and we 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 mocked up the sounds on that, and I, I showed him what my concept was, and out of that, that was how we built the SDS five. And um, actually, the 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 entire T rooms album, and most I think quite a bit of Manhattan Boogie Woogie, but certainly the shock stuff I did was all done with the the prototype, which was, you know, literally a piece of wood with a bunch of wires hanging off of it and um, components on it. So it was, it was all very experimental. I mean, you know, you had to, you had to have a soldering iron and a screwdriver um, present at all times. <laughs> so it, that was very fun. I mean, it really felt like we were, we were breaking new ground at that point. Well, it's f- fair to say that it, it certainly shaped, I'd say the sound of the, of the eighties and, um, you know, everybody was using that. It's just fantastic. Um, That's right. 
actually, I think the um, hexagonal shape was your idea, wasn't it, Richard? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, I was driving up to New Orleans one day. Uh, sorry, New Orleans, St. Albans one day, and uh, I'm in the wrong country here. Um, and uh, uh, and um, and um, I, I I was thinking. Well, it doesn't need to be round anymore, you know, because there's no there's no head to stretch over it and so on. So, and I, I I was just pondering, and I thought, well, you do want it to be sort of ergonomic, you know, things to fit together. And I immediately thought of the honeycomb, the way those shapes fit together, and that's where the hexagonal shape came. And Dave was working on sort of bat's wing shape, which he made. I have a triangle still, which was the first one, uh, the first kind of because he, he used the, this, uh, the kind of beat. Is it the the yeah Sorry, the, 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 the heads rest, on the uh, on the video? Right. So I I actually have two of those sets still, and actually I have the molds for that as well. And that you know I I was really excited about that. I mean he came that was his idea. It was Dave's idea, and um he had he he had those made. But funnily enough, it was the hexagonal shape that took off. You know, um I well, didn't really know just, what people very, would go for. It's just a very practical solution uh, as you say right. so it comes directly from nature the hexagonal thing that you could fit you could have a small kit or you could have quite a big kit and still get, get a lot in a small space exactly yeah i mean it's fantastic yeah it was tough. it's fantastic Sorry. okay I mean, it's you. interesting scott to think back to that time when the people who were inventing and making these instruments were often uh, you know indie uh, inventors and manufacturers you know the lyrical which i played you know which, which really kind of totally <laughs> changed the way i played really um was designed and made by a guy called bill bernardi uh, near boston who um, eventually went bust i mean it was very you know he wasn't it wasn't a very commercial idea but he made this amazing instrument that got played by a lot of the leading sax and wind players of the day and um i, I was one of the very few people in the uk um to be interested in it, you know, there weren't very many of them. And that, and this company, Music Aid, who who uh, made the Simmons drums, uh, were importing uh, the Lyricon and the. So uh, I managed to get my hands on them, and that's, you know, that was towards the end of our period of playing live. So when you hear the um, tracks from. Um, Norwich, which are on the first disc of the, uh, the box set, uh, I've already changed from initially, you know, playing saxophone through um, wah wah pedals and things to playing uh, lyricon. Yeah, I, I would argue that John's, uh, you know, the leading exponent of lyricon. I mean, because I think, I, you know, I know a lot of other great sax players played lyricon, but what I heard when I heard other people playing, it was more like they were just kind of transferring their sax skills to lyricon. But I think John really embraced the lyricon as an instrument. It sort of really became his. And, I, you know, um, between that and the electronics he was using on his, on his, on his um, soprano sax, you know, I, I feel the same way. The whole band kind of did that really like Pete, I, I never heard anybody else play trombone the way Pete does through electronics. And same thing with Chris. I mean, you know, the the ring modulator stuff he did on the Fender Rhodes and the fuzz stuff he did on the Fender Rhodes was extraordinary. Um, and and Andy too, you know, you, you look at it. So we, in our Actually, own way, we everybody was... <laughs> <you're gone. laughs> 
Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, Andy, besides being an absolutely superb bass player, um, has also played a a big role in this uh, preparing the um, live tapes and editing yeah. them and with great deal of care and musicality. And uh, that I think that sort of almost took Andy by surprise, actually, that he, he really got into it. You know, he sort of starting from very kind of careful edits to then realizing what he could do. And uh, I think he's really um, helped us capture the atmosphere of those times because, um, you know, another problem we had with those um, early live tapes was that they were recorded on uh, recycled tape. Uh, and of course, recycling is a very good thing to do, but it sometimes means that you get dropouts and bits that don't work. So uh, going through all that material uh, to get proper performances and uh, the right the right versions of the, the tunes at the beginning and the end was, uh, was quite complicated. Yeah, I mean, the other thing about the band at that time too, we were a DIY band, but DIY was like everything. So we basically built our own PA system. I mean, we won... We won these Vitavox um, PA speakers um, at, in a competition, um, which was amazing for us because they were incredibly high fidelity. But then we, we had to kind of, we didn't have, there were no amplifiers with it. And, there, and so we actually strapped together two 16-channel consoles to make a 32-channel mixing console. And then we ran them with quad 405 hi-fi amps um, that we, we, we used as monoblock amps. And... Um, you know, so it was, it was, um, we were pretty deep into the electronics. I remember sitting up at Andy's house, wiring up transformers to balance the, because we had, um, we bought these 16 channel unbalanced consoles. And, and when we put um, transformers in the, uh, in the outputs to balance them so that we could run a, you know, a hundred or more foot um, snake to the, uh, to the stage. Otherwise you'd wind up picking up all kinds of hums and things like that. So it, it was exciting times, you know, we were making this up as we went along. I mean, it's just, I've really enjoyed our conversation today, but probably coming to the end of the interview, and I just wondered, as we talked about the sort of the here and now, obviously we've got this wonderful box set coming out, but what other plans do, do you guys have for the rest of the year? I mean, are any, any, any sort of plans to play live gigs or anything like that, or are you going to see how it all goes? I think I think see how it goes. I mean, I, I I would love to do some live stuff. Everybody's busy though, and and you know different people have different obligations and different uh, opinions. So I think you know we, you know we definitely you know we work. It's we, we, it needs to work for everybody. So we'll have to think that through. But I think right now what we've been focused on is getting this stuff out, and um, and we have a lot more material is the thing so if we can if we can launch you know the tea rooms album and the five cd box set um there's a lot more that we can do after that even just with recordings and i think that's the our first focus really more than anything more than anything else i look forward to these releases when they uh when they're out and i just want to take this opportunity to thank both of you for taking some time out to speak to me for the podcast uh, it's been Thank a pleasure, you. Scott. Thank you really very much. Appreciate it. Uh, very, very nice to talk about these, these things. Uh, it just occurred to me, you're saying we're working with these old analog instruments. Of course, when we were working with them, they were brand they new cutting were, edge were, analog yeah, instruments. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm always, I'm always you know, amazed. I, know. That, that, that's, that's, <laughs> I, remember, I remember unboxing my, 
my drum set from Pearl and it was absolutely brand new. It was so exciting. And now I look at it, I still have it. And and it's a vintage set. You know, I could put it online and sell it as a vintage set. You know, I think that says a lot about me too, I guess. Thanks again for coming on. Truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. We'll look forward to hearing more of your uh, podcasts as well. Thanks very much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.